0: Let me tell you about today's sponsor, Bedtime History, a podcast that's been growing in popularity over the last year. It has over 1,500 positive reviews on Apple Podcasts and has been featured in the Apple Store and in major publications like the New York Times. Bedtime History is a series of relaxing, educational stories for kids and adults who want to hear a simple, easy-listening story from history. The narrator's voice is soothing, the content is calming, and there's not a lot of music and sound effects. Instead, it's designed to help families relax while enjoying an educational bedtime story. The Bedtime History Podcast has more than 130 episodes about people, places, and events from history. Examples include Neil Armstrong, Ben Franklin, Buffalo Bill Cody, and the Transcontinental Railroad. Bedtime History is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audible, and all the major podcasting apps. Check out the show notes of this episode for a link to one of my favorite episodes about Neil Armstrong. I guarantee you're going to love it. The American History Podcast, bonus episode, The Declaration of Independence. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Worswick. Hello, and welcome to this special bonus episode of the show. We're releasing this on, appropriately, the 4th of July, 2021. Now, I've had a few requests to do some episodes on the revolutionary period in American history, so this is an attempt to address that time period. There will be more in the future, so stay tuned for those. Now, today I want to talk about that venerable document, the Declaration of Independence. So, let's start off with the origin. When you read uh, what the founding generation believed when it came to things like rights, they often spoke about the ancient constitutions as well as the rights of Englishmen. Now, what did they mean by that? Well, they were referring to the Magna Carta as well as the Petition of Right and the English Bill of Rights. The Magna Carta was the fundamental document of the rights of Englishmen, at least as far as the founders were concerned. It codified the liberties of freemen in England, and it set up the ideas that the king was not above the law. Furthermore, An important right, the right to revolution, was firmly established by the rebel barons who forced the king to sign the document at Runnymede. This is especially important to the Declaration, as you will see as we go forward. The rights and the liberties it acknowledged, and it did not grant rights, so please don't say that, it doesn't give you rights, it simply acknowledges them, were believed to continue in perpetuity, and the document itself is the backbone, or it forms the backbone, Of what was the colonial leaders, or what the colonial leaders saw as liberty and rights. So let's quickly discuss the Petition of Right and the English Bill of Rights. Now, first, the Petition of Right is often cited as a precursor to the English Bill of Rights, 1688, and the establishment of parliamentary supremacy, which took place in 1716. Now, this first document sets in stone, once again, the idea that Charles I, the King of England, was not above the law but also that laws were made by Parliament, not the monarch. This is going to lead to the English Civil War. Now, the Reader's Digest version of that event is Charles lost, and he was executed. We're not going to get too far, uh, too deep into that. Otherwise, we'll be here for a week. Um, Fast forward to 1688 and the Glorious Revolution. It was glorious because little, if any, blood was shed. James II was deposed and replaced by his daughter, Mary II, and her husband, William III, the Duke of Orange. The English Bill of Rights was similar to the Declaration of Independence in that it was an indictment of King James II. It also codified the, quote, liberties and rights of Englishmen, quote, some of which were included in the American Bill of Rights. Now, I can hear the question popping up in some of your heads, but were the colonists Englishmen anymore? Well, when they settled in the colonies, Englishmen did not give up their liberties and rights. Proof is in the first Charter of Virginia, which dates back to 1606. Also, we do for us, our heirs and successors declare by these presents, that all and every the persons, being our subjects, which shall dwell and inhabit within every or any of the said several colonies and plantations, and every of their children, which shall happen to be born within any limits and precincts of the said several colonies and plantations, shall have and enjoy all liberties, franchises, and immunities, within any of our other dominions, to all intents and purposes, as if they had been abiding and born within this our realm of England, or any other of our said dominions, end quote. And before I go on, I know there were some weird phrasings in there, but I read it to you just the way it was originally written. So it goes on, and what it's basically saying here, and in the part that I'm leaving out, is that yes, these Englishmen who are moving to the colonies they retained the rights they had when they were in England. However, it wasn't just the Virginia Charter which said this. You also had the Charter of Pennsylvania of 1681 and the Massachusetts Bay Charter of 1691. They basically said the laws of England applied to the colonies. Remember, the rights they had in England, they also had them in the colonies. And similar language can be found in every one of the charters of the 13 colonies. So it's clear that, yes, they retained their rights as Englishmen. Now, one other thing about the origin of the Declaration of Independence is is William Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England. Published in four volumes, this work was widely read in the colonies and is still considered to be the standard text on the English common law. It discussed things such as natural rights and liberties and how they were a component of the English concept of liberty and rights. Furthermore, it outlined the history of the ancient constitutions of Great Britain all the way up to 1765, and it included the Magna Carta, the Petition of Right, the Habeas Corpus Act of 1679, the English Bill of Rights, and the Act of Settlement of 1701. Okay, so before we dig into the Declaration itself, let's quickly look at a few of the other declarations issued in 1776. First, you had the Halifax Resolves. North Carolina took the first step towards independence by authorizing its delegates to discuss the issue in the Continental Congress. This resolution was adopted unanimously and authorized the delegates from North Carolina to push for independence. So by July, every colony issued its own instructions or declaration. Virginia took the lead in this movement, uh, pushing for independence, while New York was the last to agree to the move. Even some of the local governments issued declarations. I think this is important as it shows the decentralized nature of the political system in the colonies, even at the state level, so to speak. Um, This goes back to this British British idea of self-government. And one of the last things before we look at the text if you read the documents from the 18th and 19th century, one of the things you're going to quickly realize is the rule of spelling and capitalization uh, that we have today, those rules did not exist back then. Thus, they are, at least in this area, <laughs> they're a mess. Okay, uh, And the Declaration of Independence is no different. Now, the reason that I mention this is the fact that the first two sentences um, say, quote, in Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13th United States of America. Now the word, and end quote, the word United is not capitalized. Now, I don't think in this case it was left lowercase on accident. So why am I focusing on this? Well, we hear the Declaration was a foundational document of the United States as if the United States is a nation state and the Declaration of Independence marks the birth of the nation. As you'll see, or at least I hope you'll see, by the time this mini-series of episodes um, is done or at least be by the time this one is done, uh, that's not the case. And this right here is the first piece of evidence. Now, I know I just said there were no rules. Um, so surely it could just be a mistake on the part of Jefferson. But I don't believe that's the case. There is no evidence that any member of the founding generation believed they were forming a new nation in the sense that France is a nation. Now, historian George Billius argues the Lincolnian idea that de- declaration did indeed create a United States, both worse capitalized. On this point, we disagree, but I digress. Now, rest assured, I'm going to get to more on this towards the end of the episode. Hey, guys, are you enjoying this episode on history and economics? Are you looking to take your learning to the next level? Will, the next level of the American History Podcast can be found at Liberty Classroom. This site is awesome, and it's perfect for parents who have homeschool kids or even adults who are simply lifelong learners. Go to the com, click on the linked picture on the sidebar, and you'll be ready to join. You'll find courses on, of course, history, but also economics, Latin American history, literature, rhetoric, and more, all of which are taught by fantastic professors I know and trust. People like Tom Woods, graduate of both Harvard and Columbia, as well as others like Robert Murphy, Kevin Gutzman, Brian McClanahan, Jeffrey Herbner, and many other great scholars. Seriously, this is a fantastic site. If you're looking to finally learn the things they didn't teach in high school, but should have, unless I was your teacher, of course, this is the place for you. Again, be sure to enter the site via the link on our website and we'll get a small finder's fee. It's a win-win for you and the show. Now back to the program. But There is another problem with these first two sentences. It says unanimous, but the declaration as of July 2nd, when it was sent to the printers, was not unanimous. New York had abstained from voting on it until it was authorized to do so by their colonial legislature. The word unanimous was inserted later after a unanimous resolution supporting it was passed. Now the next part of the document is the part where the document explains the reasons the colonies are leaving the British Empire. Quote, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect of the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. End quote. Now, it's pretty clear they are simply saying they have a right to political independence. But the one thing which I think many get wrong is based on the words laws of nature. Now, some will argue this is a reference to the Lockean idea of natural rights. And I'm not sure I agree. I think they were actually referencing the traditional rights of Englishmen, and not so much the Lockean idea of natural rights. The authors are laying out the grounds for the decision to leave the British Empire, and just referencing John Locke wouldn't be enough. However, by reminding people of their rights as Englishmen, well, this makes it a much stronger argument. Now we get to the point um, that most civics teachers will focus on. Quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form, as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness." Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be charged for light and transient causes, and accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object events as a design, to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security." Okay, so what's going on here? They're outlining their philosophy of government. We must be careful. They don't mean equal, as a Marxist in the 20th century meant equal. They mean equal before the law. Further, the purpose of government is to secure the rights of men, which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These men were not anarchists. They believed in government, even if they thought it should only do certain things. Now, a second point here is the right to revolution, something most civics teachers and most of those who like to espouse the Declaration of the Foundational Document of the American Nation overlook. Notice the lines, quote, "...whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government." This is part and parcel of the American, as I like to call it, the American DNA, this idea of revolution. And no, it does not mean revolution via the ballot box. Now, yes, I've heard that inanity, and it's ridiculous. They meant exactly what this says, the right to change the government if the government is destructive. Now, the next part of the document is an indictment of the king. There are 27 of these, and I'm not going to go over each and every last one of them. The charges are backed up by the actions of the royal governors, who had dissolved the elected legislatures in several of the colonies. Notice the U.S. Constitution does not allow for the president to dissolve Congress. They know the legislature's power, or the legislative power, is incapable of annihilation. It rests with the people. Some of these bodies simply went down the road to a tavern or whatnot, and they continued to do the job of legislating, whether or not it was recognized by the royal officials. Another one of these charges that he uh, was that he quartered large numbers of troops in people's homes. <laughs> Talk about tyranny. Um, <laughs> that's tyranny if I've never, if I've ever heard of it. Forcing people to take in a strange soldier and provide him with a place to sleep? Imagine if the government today forced you to take in some stranger and provide him or her with a bed, sheets for their bed, etc. I think you'd be pretty upset. This was part of the declaration of martial law in various colonies. You had the Quartering Acts of 1765 and 1774. There was the military occupation of Boston in 1768 and 1774. You also had Lexington and Concord in 75, Bunker Hill in 75, and Charleston in 76. So this was not simply a one-off incident. Now, there were plenty of other charges, but I think this is a good look at them. Some people might say this is all just propaganda, but I disagree. The wording was firm, and it brought up plenty of examples. This was anything, at least in my opinion, but propaganda. The last paragraph, as historian Brian McClanahan notes, um, is both the most overlooked part of the document but also the most important. The document, while being a document of disunion or secession, and I don't think there's any doubt that that's what it is, um, it does contain this paragraph, which is foundational to the American notion of government. So let's look at the wording. Quote, We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, by the way, it's lowercase United States, U is lowercase, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name of, and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states. Now, if you're re- end quote. now if you're reading along, you will note, depending of course on your copy, two things which are important. The first I've already mentioned is that "United" is again uncapitalized. I think this is further proof that Jefferson wasn't doing this accidentally. But then you get to the word Congress. This term in the United States today refers to the legislative body of the general or the federal government, whatever you want to call it. However, a Congress is a gathering of representatives from independent states. At least this is the way it was understood in the 18th century. They called the gathering of representatives from the various colonies, the first and then the second Continental Congress, for a reason. This wasn't an accident. They chose those terms on purpose. I wonder why. Now, to continue this point, you have the word state. In the 18th century, the word did not mean states as in a province. And kind of really doesn't today, except when you're talking about the United States. The founders, when using the term state, meant the same thing as, say, the state of Great Britain. The 13 colonies were now independent, sovereign states, equal to France or Britain. And once again, you have sovereignty. And once, I should say, once you have sovereignty, that cannot be given up especially when sovereignty rests with the people as it does you can delegate power but you always have that power it's still with the state that represents the people be it the state of virginia or the state of new york or texas they can authorize another body say the federal government to do certain things but the power to do those things is still theirs they can recall that power at any time they want so think of it like this i'm a teacher i have the power of the gradebook the power of grading is in my hands. That's part of my sovereign power as a teacher, if you will. However, every now and again, I delegate that power to my students. Perhaps we've just taken a quiz, and in order to save time, I instruct them switch papers, and we're going to grade them together. The power of grading, however, still rests with me. If there's some malfeasance, I can always override the grades that the students have given. I haven't lost that power. It's the same with the states and the federal government the power rests with the states. Now, going forward in this paragraph, we see that the document does present a brief outline as to the nature of the American system, and it's unlike anything historians, such as the previously mentioned uh, George Billius, or politicians like Abraham Lincoln, imagine it to be, quote, that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may have right do, end quote. The 13 colonies are now 13 independent states. It's quite clear. Going forward, they will involve themselves in a union, yes, but once sovereign, they are always that. The union between the states does not predate the states themselves. They are just that, states. They are not provinces or departments of the federal state. You can see this expression pressed in the Treaty of Paris of 1783 that officially brought the War of Independence to a close. It's recognized, or it recognized, I should say, 13 independent states. The union between the states then comes in the form of the Articles of Confederation and then the Constitution. But what those documents created, and what the Declaration hints at, is a federation. It's not a nation. This is a union of constituent states, that delegate authority to the general government to do certain things, but retain the ability to recall that power, if such power is abused. The states are sovereign, and thus they are supreme. All right, well, that's all I've got for you for this special July 4th bonus episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I will link to some great books that deal with the subject in depth and uh, on the show notes page, so please check them out. Once again, I'm Sean. And you've been listening to the 4th of July bonus episode on the Declaration of Independence. And I'll be seeing you all soon. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.